Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media, digital media production of all kinds. Our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, uh, we are going to have Nick Jushishin from Drexel University talking about how live broadcast cameras and lenses are tracked in real time. So it should be a very good second hour. So stay tuned for that. And let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. First in, Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York, asking, Morning, everyone. Does the panel have any experience with the OWC Mercury Helios 3S in use with a Blackmagic Decklink card? Would you recommend it over Sonnet Box enclosures? Thanks. Go ahead, Jason. I have a pair of them uh, running Duo 2s, and uh, I, I've never owned a Sonnet. They are rock solid. I don't love the way that the power supply connects. You need to kind of put a little loop in there just to make sure that nothing pulls out. It's not locking. Other than that, no complaints. Completely solid. And so this is a and and um, this holds a Mac Mini, or is it just is it just a or this is the card? This is the card with the drive. Just holds the card. It's a tiny little box with okay, you know, the power. Box. Yeah. And is it is it a full sized? Um, will it handle a full size card? Yes. And what's the price? I want to say less than a Sonnet, but I don't okay. remember. And, and sorry, say it again, John. I think it's two sixty five, something okay. like that. Yeah, that's great. And and the uh, um, yeah, that's really interesting because what I've been looking at the most is the OWC. Uh, they have a, a hard drive solution as well, right? They have another one yep. that you put the card in, um, and then the Mac Mini, I believe, right? So the whole thing fits into one, is, is, or is it just just the card and the drives? I guess just the card and the drives and, and whatever you want to connect to it. Oh, you're but, talking about um, yeah, the black enclosure. And um, yeah, that that's a little bit of a different device. But it's pretty cool. Yeah, It's so. very cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, next question. Jeffrey Reyes from the Bronx, New York. Which Wacom tablet do you guys use or recommend? I'm interested in getting a Wacom tablet for 3D modeling work. Also, are the pen displays more useful versus the pen tablets without the display? So uh, I've had a lot of Wacom tablets, um, you know, and right now I'm using, I, for this, for what I do with, um, this is a Wacom tablet here. Uh, for what I do here, this is a um, the Wacom One. So this is the the least expensive version. It's probably the least expensive of a, um, uh, one with a screen. Now I started using a tablet in 1993, <laughs> so 30 years ago, uh, and it was a little tablet that was, you know, little little tiny tablet that I had there, and I and I just couldn't not have one, and so I just constantly have had one, some version of that. Um, I had a lot of the Intuos, the Intuos um, from from Wacom as well. After that. And I've had probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 different Cintiqs, um, 21, 22, 24, 16s, um, and now the one. The one I use for, for again, for this, if I, if I was actually doing more work with this tablet than what I do with it, I'd probably get the Cintiq, um, the Cintiq 16-inch. The 24-inch is a commitment and probably more of a commitment than you than you want. <laughs> so uh, I wouldn't recommend the, the 22 or 24 inch now. I don't, I can't remember which one, what they call it now, but that bigger one is a big, it takes up a lot of desk space. So you have to be really um, doing really fine detail. If you are, and you really need that kind of monitor space, then it makes sense. But um, you know, it's, it's not something that um, most people need. The 16 works really, really well. I do really, there are some people who, who are really fine with not looking at what they're doing, but it is so magical to sit there and draw and look at what you're working on. 
Um, it just feels much more organic. Go ahead, Chris. Alex, I'm curious. Uh, with your in your system, do you are you currently sitting at a computer with a single monitor, or do you take does that tablet span multiple monitors? Uh, no, there's just the tablet is just a monitor, and the tablet, the way I use it right now, it's simply a program out from my um, from my ATEM. You know, so that's what I'm, you know, it's the program, it's a HDMI that's just full screen right. that is just my ATEM. So it doesn't really belong to my computer in that, in that sense of the way this one's built. And typically it's, it's a, um, it's not really a monitor, but it's, it's whatever I put in it. So if I'm working on something, I'll put that window in. It's oftentimes it's not the whole window. If I'm working in 3D or if I'm working in, like in a paint program, it'll be the window that, that is controlling that. So you can't take your stylus and reach over to your main display and pull down menus. It's just stuff on that display that you can draw on. That's right. I mean, I, right. I, maybe I could. I never tried to do that. Well, <laughs> I, see, I, I, I used to use a stylus back in the 90s as well. And I stopped when I started getting into multiple displays because in order for it to be to your writing to be the appropriate aspect ratio, you would have to squeeze the two displays on the one tablet um, surface. So think of like a quad split, but you only get to use the top two to draw right. on it. And the bottom two uh, was where you put your palms. You know, I mean, you couldn't do anything with it. And then I'd have to buy like the biggest ones you could get back then so that you had a certain enough resolution right. to move your stylus between the two screens. And it just got to be silly when the displays got higher and higher resolution. And so I stopped using them. Yeah, the, it's a pretty fast moving market now. There's a lot of people, I mean, they're so common. If you walk into a, a high end 3D slash roto slash, you know, you just see them everywhere. Um, and they're, especially if you're doing a lot of work, if you can get used to the tablet, there's some people that just really like mice and trackpads. And I use a trackball when I'm not using the Wacom tablet because I don't have a lot of desk space available. I've got all this junk everywhere. And so, so I don't, so a trackball keeps me from running into things with my mouse. Um, and the, um, so I, I think that, you know, people use all these different tools. I will say that a very large percentage of them are using Cintiqs, you know, to do their modeling work, to do their paint work. I mean, I, I very rarely do see a high, I will say, I, I hesitate to say never, but almost never will you see a photo retoucher not using a Wacom tablet. Like, you know, like it's, you know, like that is like they have to be using that tablet to do that. There's there's other less expensive Chinese versions of, of these that, that have lots of buttons and so on and so forth. I find that the fit and finish, as you would expect, are probably is not as good as the Wacom tablet. Um, uh, I do applaud that those tablets for coming out because they pressured Wacom to give us something that was less than $500. Um, so the Wacom one is the $500 version. It's also more convenient. It's only got one connector. The connector is a lot simpler than the one with, than the Cintiq. I have the Cintiq. And um, I may actually start putting it back in because we have so many keystrokes now with with um, my my little drawing program that having those keys back would be nice. This one doesn't have any keys on the side, um, which I didn't use that heavily before, but now I would probably use them more. Um, those keys on the side are pretty useful um, because you can you can assign them to anything you want it to do, so you can be doing things, and it makes it very efficient. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. I found that um, the Wacom tablets price dropped precipitously the minute that iPad started to like eat their lunch on the low end. Um, I know it's not the same product, but yeah, um, I, I plus one also on getting the biggest one is, is 
really a commitment. Like it is just a pain in the butt. Yeah, it's a lot of desk space. You have to really commit to it. And mine sits, I have mine on a monitor stand, so it swings. So it's like one of those, you know, where you'd swing in a monitor stand. It's really nice because I can just kind of pull it up to where I want to use it rather than having it sit somewhere. So I, the smaller one is easier. I don't know if I could do that with the big one, but I guess we, we have done it. Uh, we did it with the monitors in motion arm, which is their bigger arm. I think it was like the Cobra or something like that that would handle this and, you know, it was just, it was kind of great. It would swing in and just sit there and you could draw on it. But I felt like there was just a little vibration in it that I didn't like. So anyway, this one's really stiff. The one that I have here is stiff so I can draw on it and it, and it takes a little bit to move it, but it's, it's great. Um, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, I would highly recommend it. I, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the Intuos. <laughs> you know, like I'm not a big, fa- I mean, I'm not a big fan of not having a screen. I think that at this point, the price point has gotten so low to have a screen. I would definitely recommend um, recommend a screen. So uh, before you know, over over just trying to look up and do it. But there's some. I, there's only a handful of people I've ever I've seen in the last ten years that don't use something with a screen in it. Uh, next question from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, "Where is the safest and lowest cost place to park a phone number, a domain name?" Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, well, I use Magic Jack. Uh, there is a thing called number number born where you can park one for about two bucks a month but i use magic jack because uh for 49 dollars a year you can transfer um any number to it and uh it then you can plug in you plug in your magic jack to your ethernet at home and uh you get uh, full phone service out of a uh, rj11 jack that's on the magic jack plus it has an app a magic app that runs on any cell phone. So uh, it will ring your cell phone with that number, even though your cell phone has a different number and it won't take up any of your minutes. So you can answer calls to that number still on the cell phone. So you can have two numbers on a single cell phone. That's why it's really handy. There you go, Jason. I'd say Google voice or ubiquity for the former and for the latter hover is my go-to for domains. Sorry, I hit the wrong the wrong button and then my screen filled up uh yeah go ahead mitchell is there a difference between parking it and not using it and parking it and having it re uh, refer to another number or transfer to it that would be my question i do want to get rid of my uh, landline i'm very remiss in doing it and the only people that ever call it are telemarketers and i think they should pay for the phone number <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't. I I, uh, I actually don't know. Go ahead, Courtney. Do you know if it, you can just park it there? I guess you can just park it there and just leave it uh, at at uh, Number Barn. You can just park it there uh, with Magic Jack. You transfer it there, and it does have call forwarding and free call waiting, call forwarding, all those things. So you can forward it then to another number once you park it there. Uh, you don't have to hook up the uh, you know you don't have to hook up the little appliance, and then then it's like fifty bucks a year to keep it going we used to own so many magic jacks <laughs> it was a kind of a funny little way before we really got working in comms we were able to kind of have that be the dial in um from you know because we had a lot of the little uh jk audio converters to make that actually work and since we already had those we had magic jacks to tie them back into the internet uh, next question from chris fenwick here on the uh, panel and also from emeryville california And Chris wants to know, I'd like to discuss the new internet provider I just had installed yesterday and get input from the panel. Go ahead, John. We're super impressed the speeds that Chris can articulate this more than me, but 
looks like he's got fixed fixed wireless set up into his his apartment complex which is super old and got old pots infrastructure as far as cabling and, and old coax cable so it looks like they're using uh dslam or vdsl into the uh each each one of the units but it seems to be working great chris what do you know what did you get so um, it's a it's a Bay Area company. It's called Sail Internet. After getting their postcards for about six months, I finally succumbed. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, it's like in this building, it's so bad. Uh, by the way, I got the gig up and down. It's a introductory price of 55. It'll go to 65 a month. No contract, no throttling, no data limit. And another uh, thing that's interesting, it's it's not very widely available, obviously. So the service area is part of the Bay Area. So it's a local company. But I think the I think the the story behind it is you should always be looking. Don't be afraid to um, you know respond to some of the advertisements you get. Uh, it's a huge infrastructure lift for this complex because what they had to do is they had to put. Actually, maybe it's not a huge infrastructure. They had to put in multiple antennas on each of the six buildings in my apartment complex. And then, you know, they're going to keep selling those postcards until they're cash positive on their on their infrastructure install. But um, the kid who installed it was was really friendly. I think they have, you know, and I realize this is a global show and this is a local solution, but there are viewers here in the Bay Area. There um you know, they have some work to do on terms of like the fit and finish of the install. I told him, I said, dude, if you did this to my mother's house, you'd never be asked back again. He li- he literally left cables. I go, I'll get a, I'll go get a dress kit. He just didn't have the right tools in his, tr- or, the, or the right, uh, he had the tools. He didn't have the right like hardware to like dress it in the wall better. But um, I'm getting, realistically, I'm getting up to down by almost 800 up. Um, in the basement, when he tested it with his laptop, he was getting 930 by 930. And, and that's when they initially, again, after three or four postcards, I finally called and I said, okay, I know it says up to one gig, but you know, 100 megabits up and down is up to 100 or a gigabit. So what can I realistically expect to see? And the numbers they quoted me is about what I'm getting. It's funny. I uh, when I I was in Missouri, I think I was Missouri, and and I was talking to someone who had the Google Fiber, and uh, and I said, "Is it really a gig?" Like I was just, you know, is it is it really a gig? And he goes, "No, nah, it's only nine hundred and thirty. <laughs> it was nine thirty. Is is when you get a gig, it's nine thirty. Is the, is the which is the number that they were getting in the basement? Yeah, it's so, funny. It's yeah. a funny thing. Yeah, it's yeah. So far, what I'm curious about this is the first time I've actually used it on Zoom this morning. So I'm curious to see if anybody sees any, you know, I mean, stuff. No, no. Uh, Alex, you feel almost like you're in 3D. Awesome. That's what I was shooting for. Now, Alex, are you still primarily using a wireless hop from your house? No, no I, we had too many problems with it. I, I it was expensive too. So it was expensive. Um, we had, uh, uh, it was, it was the back. What happened was we couldn't get a very fast Comcast connection that would support the kids going to school during COVID. My, my wife running a virtual events and me running virtual events. So I jumped on the wireless. The problem we really had was turkey vultures. Um, so the turkey vultures would spread their wings out in the sun and, and split the, you know, actually put their wing in front of the antenna. And I would, I would have dropouts for a couple of seconds. And I have to run. So there was one time I ran out and like threw a little rock at the turkey vulture. I was like, get out of here. Like you're, you're screwing up my internet. So anyway, so the turkey vultures is the reason I got rid of the wireless. Um, so, uh, and then, and then we, 
we called Comcast and Comcast, you know, gave us the same price and then now has one gig down and 40 up. And now we have Frontier coming and that's five gigs up and down, symmetrical for 150 bucks a month. So, so um, I happen yeah. to notice on their pricing plan under business plans, you could get, they say, uh, again, up to um, speeds from one to 10 gig. Yeah, it's getting pretty fast. Where where you can get internet, the inter the competition now is starting to cross the one gig turn, and so then the next thing you're looking for is symmetrical, um, you know, and and the prices are just going through the floor, you know. So I think that I think a lot of people were waiting to see what happened with five G, and five G turned out to be a disaster. So now everyone's investing in in all the other things again. They're like, oh, okay, nothing's going to actually happen here. And uh, Jason. Yeah, um, anyone who knows anything about 5G is not at all surprised that 5G didn't actually do very much unless you're in a football stadium. Uh, what's neat about what Fenwick has, and although he may be in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, this is, um, this is a kind of technology that's been around for a long time. It's repurposed DARPA technology. Um, the one that I'm familiar with is Motorola Canopy technology, and it's extremely focused site-to-site, point-to-point, terrestrial, wireless the part that I'd never heard of before, but it makes total sense, is to, you know, get a really fixed set a cluster of antennas and then use extremely short throw VDSL to use the, the POTS system in his apartment complex to just go right up. And then, you know, when it's that short of a throw, um, you know, you get almost no degradation. And the overhead, the 10% overhead that you're dealing with just simply has to do with the handshake. And if anybody doesn't know, POTS stands for Plain Old Telephone System, P-O-T-S. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. They do, do they have to, uh, the, was the pricing based on just you or did the apartment complex foot the bill and split it amongst all the tenants? Or what's the pricing like? And I don't know. I'm paying 65 a month or 55 and it'll go up to 65. Uh, no contract, by the way. Um mm -hmm. And uh, I believe, actually, I don't know. I, I think they, they gambled on it, and that's why they're sending the postcards out. Yeah, um, but so they, they, saw, they saw that this, this building was horribly served by Comcast, horribly served. They were, se they were actively selling gigabit speeds, but they, they knew, they absolutely knew they couldn't deliver more than 200 down but they would gladly take your money for gigabit. Do you know yeah. if uh, you're sharing uh, bandwidth with anybody else in your apartment since it's a single transceiver on the roof? Uh, I, here's what I know. The box that, because I hovered over, the, I was a pain in the butt. I hovered over his shoulder the whole time. What are you doing now? What are you doing now? Oh, here, let me, let me get that for you. Uh, um, antenna on the roof goes to a box that looks like a, you know, a big switch that's bolted to the wall in a lockbox in the basement. Out of there, an Ethernet cable comes over into the AT&T box, which is completely insecure. Like, it's anti-secure. It doesn't even have a latch on the doors that hold it. They're, I'm sure they blow in the wind. And then he breaks out of that Ethernet cable into the two, you know, the green and the striped green POTS lines, goes into that, and then he uh, connects up to the same green and striped green in the wall in my apartment, puts another little box out of that box, an ethernet cable, who knows what that is. Uh, out of, it is plugged into the wall, uh, goes into my 
um, router. And I'm and I switched over from using the night gear something that somebody night recommended gear. I bought um, to using one of the a single Google puck because we the night gear wasn't working. Nighthawk wasn't working. He goes, here, try one of these. And so the puck worked great. And that goes into a, a Netgear 16 output switch over here that all the computers and whatnot are plugged into. And it sounds like okay. he's, he's, what Jason says is a DSL DSLAM that puts it over the POTS line. And then you have a filter on your end to filter out the digital from your analog, analog yeah. POTS line for telephone. Yeah. Makes and that same cable that goes into the Google puck if you just had a single computer, you could plug it straight into the computer, obviously. Go ahead, go ahead Mitchell. Yeah, first, I heard that uh, a rumor that Comcast is training turkey vultures to block uh, 5G yeah, services. There's, <laughs> there's a whole plan there. They're, they're breeding them. They're breeding them. They're just throwing, you know, uh, I was going to go really dark there. Exactly. So we'll, the, 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 other, the other thing to keep in mind is that when you were negotiating uh, away from Comcast, keep in mind that you're worth more to the uh, the uh, uh, internet service provider as a uh, as a subscriber than you are the actual money that you're paying. They will bend over backwards. Everybody will to keep you yeah. because they need that on their rolls. The number of people that are subscribers. Yeah. Well, I was I wrote a letter to their you know contact us uh, mm-hmm. after the install yesterday, and I said, look, I am super supportive of anybody who's comp- competition with Comcast. And here's some things that you should improve on. You know, you need to get better at this. Right. You need to have these things in your truck. You know, and let's make. And I even said, let's make a testimonial video for all the other thousand apartments or whatever it is in this complex, and say, hey, it's not hard to switch. You should switch. <laughs> uh, next question. All right, this one's from Douglas Carmichael asking: Has anyone ever used a spectral audio editor like Steinberg Spectral Layers Pro? I've been starting to use it, and you can create some really creative effects when editing audio at the spectral level. Uh, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Yeah, the important thing is that when you use a normal uh, non-spectral layer, you're using a complex waveform, and you can't literally see all the individual sounds that make that waveform. Uh, spectral will allow you to see individual and special sounds like a 60-cycle tone. You can see, literally see it and edit it and manufacture uh, uh, adjusted in a Steinberg or any other device that does uh, some type of spectral, uh, so it's it's much more precise, and you got to know what you're doing to be able to make it work for you. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you can think of it as kind of a uh, visually oriented notch filter, so those frequencies are spread out in the spectrum and, and displayed uh, visually, and so you can highlight or circle certain frequencies of a certain area and just suppress those frequencies in that area. I think Audacity has has the ability to do this too. It, it displays it in a spectral display. I don't know if it lets you edit the spectrum. Adobe's Audition has been doing it for a couple decades, so it's definitely been in there for a while. I mean, we used to use it for a lot of restoration, and I've used it there for restoration. Um, you know, you're grabbing something that some blip or something, and you can you can it, it's got some great heal what they call healing tools, which takes into account that you're not looking at the whole thing, and so kind of um, blends that back in more intelligently. Uh, it's magical. Yeah, I mean, you know, using those, and I've never seen Spectral Layers Pro uh, from Steinberg. I'm super interested, <laughs> so we're, maybe we'll get a second hour on that. Uh, I hadn't, I hadn't seen it until Douglas posted it here, so I'm, I'm definitely very interested. I saw my first Spectral analog, um, Spectral editor probably in the early '90s or mid '90s, um, and uh, 
And I just was, and I was, I thought of all the things like, what I have this thing, like I could play a picture, like I can, you know, I can put a picture in there and in just case you're wondering if you play a picture, it sounds horrible. It just sounds like mostly like noise. <laughs> so it doesn't really work. But, uh, I, I was also thought that I could, you know, get all the lyrics from songs if I took the cassette and put it into my uh, Commodore and, you know, just played it out, but didn't do that either. So, so anyway, so that, it doesn't convert very well, but, uh, but it is a, uh, it looks really, really interesting and we'll, We'll, we'll definitely see if we can get those guys on to talk about it because it, I think that there's a whole bunch of Steinberg tools that'd be cool to take a look at. They have a lot of really specialty products that you just don't see anywhere else. No. Next question. Next one in from James Fosleen in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, asking what other methods can you use to drop filler words like huh and ah uh, besides AI tools like Descript? Mitchell. Um, I'm a little old-fashioned. used to use the old razor blade. Uh, but I've gotten to the point, particularly when... <laughs> Did you take out ahs and ums with a razor Yeah, blade? with a digital uh, screen. I just ripped my screen up. Um, it, uh, it, it's funny because I, I do a lot of voiceover work, and I can look at a waveform, and I can tell when I'm doing those sounds. So visually, I can I can do it without even listening. Oh, that's me doing ah uh, or um, whatever. So uh, it depends on who you are and how you like to work, whatever your workflow is. But being able to see a waveform is definitely a plus over... Hacking away at a piece of tape. I'm still working on the most the most manual way of doing it, which is trying to train myself to not say uh and um. It's it's hard, especially in a live show when you're coming up with things. It's very very difficult to not not use any of them. So I'm working on getting that done. That's the easiest place at the source is to not do it, but it is hard to do, and I do it all the time. So I'm still working. I'm still it's it's a progress. It's a lifetime curve. I used to be really good when I was on radio. I never used those words. And then I got out of radio and slowly crept back into the into the mag, into the mix. But I was imagining Mitchell you know, doing like when you said razor, I was thinking reel to reel. You know, we used to so like when when we used to do reel to reel, you'd, you'd go to get to cut on a beat, you you you'd go dunk, and then you go ooh ooh ooh, and then you you cut on the beat there. <laughs> so that was that was our uh, our life. Good, Chris. Turns out silence is is good. If you find your, most of the time we put those words in because we feel like we we need to keep talking. And right. silence can really draw people in if, from a performance standpoint. Uh, Mitchell, I totally agree. You can, you get to a point where you can look at a waveform and I can tell, I can mm -hmm. tell. It, it's like, it's like in uh, the Matrix, you know, did you see the red, the woman in the red yeah. dress? Yeah. Uh, Jason. Yeah, best way to block a punch is to not be there. Uh, practice is certainly the hardest part of this, but you need to remember, how do I put this? Because I almost said, um. <laughs> um uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, it's just one of these hard things. The, um, um. See, this, this kind of question gets us all caught up because now we're thinking so much about not saying, um, we can't think of what we we're going to say. So, um. And uh, RX, there's RX tools out there that do it as well. So um, in, in the Isotrope RX tools will will have some these things that will run past these and, and run silencers on them. Uh, Gling is the new one that also does what Descript does. I don't. Gling is kind of the you pay five dollars a unit as opposed to the whole thing, but it it seems like it's very similar to Descript. So those are the other ones that might do it. Next question. Next question in from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Alex was quoting the Bard yesterday, so I asked Bard, who started Office Hours Global, and it said, Nate DeMeo. Benefits learn from experts, get good advice, make friends, stay up to date, be inspired. So, 
Who is this Nate DeMeo? Is he, she, it here? <laughs> Go ahead, John. I just asked Bard, and I worded it a little bit differently. I just said, who founded Office Hours Global? And it nailed it perfectly. And then I asked ChatGPT, and ChatGPT says, I'm sorry, my training cut off September 2021. This is a huge advantage that Bard has over ChatGPT is they've got the they've got integration into the web current hmm. information, which ChatGPT has a plug-in for, but uh, th that has not been released yet. Hmm. That's interesting. Go ahead, Courtney. And in answer to your question, that DeMeo is a podcaster in Los Angeles. He does a podcast, I think, called The Memory Palace, uh, and was on uh, featured on This American Life and and some other PBS shows. So. That's who he is, but I've never heard him associated with office hours, so it could be a hallucination. <laughs> Next question. Sorry about that. Uh, Darren Cirillo from Dallas, Texas, asking, are there any issues with storing your primary Mac photo library on a Synology network-attached storage? Jason. Darren, buddy, please don't do that. If you want to use the Synology app to, like, take your photos out. There is an application that will do that, but trying to store the photos app itself anywhere, but on your main hard drive gets really hairy, really fast. It's funny. Cause that's what I do. <laughs> I, now glad it now works for you. From Jason, I, I have an SSD that I have there it, as an external. So the, the key is it's a little, I copied it first. <laughs> like, a, like, I don't know what I'm gonna do here because when you move it, it wants to kind of rebuild it. And that's the thing that scares you. But once you move it over, uh, it is. And then, you have to, you know, assign it there and there's a little bit of a setup. But once you do that, the problem I had was in my photo library was taking over my hard drive. And so it was, I needed to put it somewhere else so that I didn't run out of hard drive space because I take a lot of photos and a lot of movies and just kept on getting bigger. So, so that, that's, that's what I do there. But you can, um, you can put it on an external drive. Uh, I would copy it somewhere else first and then move it over. But then, and then you have to define it and it needs to rebuild it on that drive, but it, it will do that. Uh, next question. From Andre Delay in Berlin, I'm searching for a bonding router solution to bond multiple LTE SIMs and a Starlink. Recommendations, entry level versus pro level. Go ahead, Chris. Um, so, Andre, I realize you're in Berlin. Uh, in the U.S., uh, our own Keenan Campbell has a, a disaster group .us, um, which works really great. It does exactly what you're talking about. Um, and they have a very attractive uh, data plan. Um, I'm just getting word from Keenan. His hardware would work if you put EU-based SIMs in it. You you wouldn't get the benefit of his data plan. He's buying data in bulk and selling it to you at below wholesale rates. Um, but his hardware at disastergroup.us would work. There may be a European solution that's better. Go, Jason. Yeah, plus one for Keenan and disastergroup.us. That hardware is unmatched. Uh, for those of us that, that were in Vegas in person, we got to see this right up close and personal, and it was truly impressive. Yeah, it works, it works really well. Bonding, you will have trouble bonding and then using something like Zoom, you know, oftentimes because uh, bonding in general has issues with um, the, the the increased jitter. The jitter that happens because the the bits are all coming at different speeds from all the different modems. So you will have, you, you may not find that that works as well. So when you're streaming, it works extremely well. And again, you can take something like a disaster group and then plug a, 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 a um, uh, 
Starlink into it, and then you have a really fast connection with a lot of things that back it up. So if you're transferring files or you're up or you're streaming, the streaming works fine because there's buffers there. Um, but when you're doing real-time WebRTC, we have found over the last decade that it just doesn't work very well in a bonding environment. So you have to be kind of careful of, of how you use it there. Um, things that are a little bit slower with SRT might work fine, um, but, but WebRTC itself is pretty sensitive to it. Um, the one that we've used when we're not using something like, and we used at, at NAB, the disaster group um, uh, .us um, uh, connection. But we also use PepWave. PepWave is a way that we kind of build them from scratch, you know, to to make those um, services. So if you're in the in the if you don't have access to something like that, and you're in the in Europe, you might want to look at a PepWave as a piece of hardware to bond them. I don't know of anything else that really does it, um, you know, outside of services like like what we were just talking about there. So. Um, but just, just note that once you start bonding, you will have a hard time with uh, things like WebRTC. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, has a question. What, why is AFS, AFF, autofocus single and autofocus flexible mode still a thing on mirrorless cameras with incredibly accurate continuous autofocus these days? Is there a reason for these modes to still be included? Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, um, there absolutely is, because if you are accustomed, well, it depends on what you're shooting, right? If you're shooting fast action and want quick, adaptable focus, um, let's, you know, the classic, a horse, you know, riding at you, then you're going to want a different focus mode. Also, if you want to show motion blur, it's, it's going to be completely different. So, yeah, it makes total sense to me that it's on mirrorless cameras. And uh, just a quick reminder that you can ask questions throughout the hour. So we can go ahead and throw those questions into Makana. And uh, you can also vote on those questions and let us know which ones you want to us to talk about next. So um, go ahead and do that now. Uh, you can also think about live tracking questions for Nick uh, for the second hour. And uh, we'll go on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael is here. When I applied to a major broadcast truck company's apprentice program, I was rejected because of, quote, lack of experience, unquote, with mostly IT experience on my resume. The Fatima and ad aside, should we be recruiting IT professionals into our whole fold? I think that you, I mean, in general, you want people with a lot of, in our, in what we do, you want uh, uh, people that have more and more IT, and you'll see us continuing to focus on, you know, bringing more folks that know a lot about IT. You'll see that on Fridays oftentimes. So we're definitely talking to folks like that. Um, um, but when you work in a truck, uh, the primary thing is going to be know, knowing the IV, the AV pipelines, you know, that, that are required for that truck. A lot of people just start in production, their camera, their PAs, they're, they're in production for a long time before they end up at a truck. Um, you know, so, you know, working in a truck is a, it's like a submarine almost, <laughs> and it's really complicated and, and, you know, you're, you're crammed in with a lot of people. So I think that it's, and they generally i mean they're they're always hungry to 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 train people but they do usually pull out of a group of people that are have been doing production typically for four or five years um before they and, and then and then they roll cables for another four or five years in the truck and then they end up you know getting to assist something but a lot of times when you see some someone cutting on it on a board um, they've oftentimes been in a truck of some kind for 10 or 15 years um, you know, before you see them, you know, go anywhere. It's a brutal existence. Like just, you know, like it's just a, it's, it's, I have a lot of respect for folks that work in a truck because they, they really know what they're doing and they're, they're used to being under an incredible amount of pressure. And there's not, usually if the truck is, it shows up, it's not a lot of room for error. 
You know, and so and so there's a lot of clients that paid a lot of money and they're really upset if things don't work out. So the precision that people have to work out there is pretty high. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I did I, I did uh broadcast sports for a couple of years in the early nineties and it's it's brutal. Uh, you have to be very comfortable with subjecting yourself to to working in an environment that is like I would call it subhuman. Um, the best path to get there is, um, as it turns out, doing like jumbo. I don't know what they call it anymore. We, we still used to call it jumbotron. You know, doing the displays in stadiums and at the co college level, sometimes you can get in there easier working on the display, uh, besides learning just the environment of what doing a sports broadcast is about, um, a lot of, there's a lot of crossover from there. So it's, it turns out to be a good sort of apprentice program into the broadcast apprentice program. You have to show that, you know, you know your way around the gear, you know your way around the environment, but most importantly, can you work uh, with people at that at that pressure level. You go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I, I agree with Chris. In fact, it's the answer that I have is that make friends, uh, become friendly with the people that work in trucks in general in your area, and you'll find you'll get a lot more work consistently because they know who you are. You know, and it's one of the reasons that we do, we're doing more and more production. So we're doing, we will be doing a Cinegear production. I think I've got that all sorted out now. Um, and uh, we also have a soccer game coming up that we're going to try covering. And one of the things that we we're trying to do is is how do we provide people with that experience without them having to work in a truck? And it's something I think about a lot. Is you know we with uh, you know Nick who's coming on next. I mean Nick started in Pixelcore as a database programmer, you know, and you know we had things that we were working on. Nick just sunk himself into it. Next thing you know, he was working on Benjamin Button, you know, and and so it's a matter of taking a lot of those examples and and process and really digging into it. So we're going to keep on. You know, but I think that even though it may seem like a simple thing, the people who do production for this show, um, they're getting used to working in a big team. They're getting used to comms. They're getting used to a global production pipeline. They're getting used to, and whether those these are the exact tools they're going to use in the future is not as relevant as, you know, getting the experience of of working on these um, day in day out. Uh, really sets you up for the next generation of what we're what we're working on. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Also, be careful what you wish for. You may get that job and decide you hate it. Um, you have to be willing to let people yell at you for three or four hours at a time. Also, this is something that I learned uh, somewhere along the way. Is I realized uh, one time it was like New Year's Day, and I was going to uh, NF. I was working an NFL game at uh, it was called Candlestick back then, and I realized that every time that you imagine a bunch of friends gathered together, watching a game, drinking a beer, eating chips, you're working. Every one of those times, you're working. So, uh, it's a rough life. Yeah, I mean, I, I got I, I worked on uh, an NFL game a couple of years ago, and what what I was left with was this was really cool. It was amazing to do, and I could do it maybe four more times. <laughs> you know, like like before I was bored. <laughs> like like I was like, this is really cool, but it wouldn't take very long before I was like, eh, I don't want to do this anymore. So, um, yeah, it was it, it wouldn't have kept my attention. It's a lifestyle. Uh, yeah, it's a lifestyle. And, and you know, people, if you really like to travel and you really like to be yelled at, it's, it's, it's a good lifestyle. You know, I, I'm sure there's some people that work in trucks that take, take offense to that. But, but I, I have to say, when the Nuggets games, when I used to work for Prime Sports Network, it was, it's gotten so much better. I've been on, in trucks and on comms with trucks in the, in the, you know, in the, in the last couple of years. And it's, they're so much more calm. 
you know, 30 years ago, it was one long expletive, like just one long, just screaming mess. And then at the end, they go, hey, everybody, great job. Let's go. Let's go get a beer. You know, like, you know, it was just like, they didn't, no one took it personally. And if you took it personally, it didn't last very long because it was just, wow, it was, it was a thing. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado asking, could you use a Stream Deck or Stream Deck Plus with the welcome to have the button control? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yes. Um, I highly recommend uh, Mix Effect Pro. It's uh, certainly the way to go. It is a Swiss Army knife uh, to control your uh, ATEM if you're doing that with a Stream Deck. I don't quite understand the question. Or a Stream Deck Plus with, a, is with the welcome? Is, is welcome a, pro, a, a proper noun? Is that a With the welcome thing? to have. Welcome shows up on one of the little buttons when you're using the base version. Oh, okay. Uh, next question. Bobby Rafferty from Florida. Has anyone used Apple's Reality Composer? What did you make? Go, John. You know, I, I, I have it loaded on my machine here, and I thought that we used this to bring the rocket in as an OBJ and then from there create a USDZ, but it's not letting me... I think it's imp- Reality Converter. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what you, we you used. Need, yeah, the Reality Converter is the first yep. the first piece of that puzzle. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then what you do is you take you go from Reality compo- Converter and then into Composer, and in Composer you can put things together and work on textures and so on and so forth. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I was confused by the question. I thought that was the app that Steve Jobs used to create the reality distortion field, which he used in all of his presentations. <laughs> yeah, this is the composer. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Jason. Um, right when WWDC kind of uh, started to promote this, I think I followed along with, with one of the lectures, and what I came up with was just a, a kind of a little play-around app where, you know, it would track a menu. And what I wanted was, you know, when you put your phone camera like on the menu, the food would pop out. And it was really easy to code and it was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, it's it's I think it's gonna be it's gonna get more and more important. We see new features added every year. Obviously this year is gonna be probably a pretty big year for uh you know for the for the for the software. And I think it's we're gonna spend more time on it probably on Tuesdays. We'll probably spend a lot more time talking about AR after we get through the uh, the Apple announcements because we, we expect there to be a lot of them uh, this this uh, in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. Uh, let's go to the next question. From Jack Rappel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Jack asks, as I understand, wind tunnel film is done with infrared. Can you discuss practical uses of infrared uh, cameras today? How might they be used in AR and VR, such as anchoring text that has been infrared uh, highlighted? And I think it's infrared. Uh, yeah, go ahead, um, Courtney. Yeah, I didn't find it. I don't know what uh, wind tunnel the film is. I looked up and found something not suitable for work. But uh, so don't, don't don't research it in IMDb. Uh, infrared, uh, if that's what if that is what you're talking about, is uh, used all the time. Uh, most of the police helicopters in Los Angeles have FLIR cameras. That's what they refer to as FLIR, forward-looking infrared. Uh, that uh, see heat signatures, so uh, and it superimposes it over a video image, so that you can uh, find people lost in the woods or uh, you know criminals running away from the police helicopter. Highlighted, they look white, and and because it shows up the heat signature uh, as as people are running around on the ground, so it f- lets them follow people a lot easier. It's also used in the construction industry for. Uh, determining heat loss in HVAC situations where they can see where all the heat is gathering in a room and where heat is being lost in a room. So they take a forward-looking infrared uh, 
camera. There are attachments you can get for your iPhone to put a FLIR sensor uh, over the camera or along with the camera and plug it into the, I think, in, into the US lightning port and give you a uh, false color infrared uh, image so that you can determine what's the hottest thing in the frame. It's great for spotting uh, 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 you know, troubleshooting circuit boards because it'll show you what components are overheating. If something is overheating, it's a sign that it's going bad or shorted out or getting too much current. So you can spot uh, components on a circuit board that are overheating to find the bad one. We, some people like to use it for photography. It's kind of otherworldly. So it has a very you know interesting look to it. Um, the, um, the, while the phone uses infrared, you know, our, our phone uses, you know, the, the phone uses partially that as, a, as, a, as an ID um, in, in addition to the LIDAR that's there. Um, everybody's face actually has a unique infrared um, uh, signature. And uh, if you have the right cameras, you can identify somebody um, from about 50 feet away <laughs> like with, their, with the infrared signature. Uh, and if you uh, walk by some facilities three times without going in, uh, you'll, you, it, they'll, they'll figure out who you are. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, there's a, a scene in the movie Heat, which uh, I bring up because you mentioned it the other day and I was watching it the, yesterday. And there's a scene where uh, there's a, a police squad in a van looking at uh, Robert De Niro as he comes out of this building and it's all infrared. And there's a scene where he stands there and he stares at the truck and he stares at the truck and it's just so powerful because you can see this face and you can see the blood gathering around his eyes, and it was mm -hmm. uh, such a very interesting effect to use to uh, yeah. to make a very powerful comment. Go, ahead, Jason. Another great use for these is if you put them on drones, they can be used for power line inspection, for roof inspection, for you know any sort Fields. of um, yeah. Can tell you how much water you need in your field from from the drone, you know, sure. from, from those types of cameras. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Robin Cutshaw from Atlanta, Georgia, asking, I need more power for a UPS than APC 1500 provides. I've also had issues with APCs dying. What higher capacity stability UPS do you use? I mean, most of what I use are APCs. The Libex are the next step up. The Libex are going to be a lot more expensive than, than the APCs, but they are they're really nice. They're going to condition the, the power a lot more effectively. So um, we use Libex in our, um, in our bigger kits as well as the truck that I used to have or the trailer that I used to work and own. Um, and so those are, those are really, um, uh, really great, uh, transform, you know, transformer UPSs, uh, the, but you can also, I mean, we just have lots of 1500s, but there are a lot of bigger versions of the APCs. Um, we haven't had, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of issues there. So, um, anyway, uh, yeah, go to Courtney. Yeah. I just got a new one. It's down here below me and I can't quite see it's cyber power. I don't know the model number, but I think it's 2,500 is pretty good size, about the size of a small PC. Uh, and it backs up everything and it gives you a nice readout of how many minutes you have left. And it reads the amount of current that it's using and it does uh, automatic switchover uh, pretty seamlessly in its sine wave. So it's pretty good cyber power. Next question. And it's a question for me asking, where do panelists like to buy their shirts shown on office hours? Go ahead, Mitchell. It's uh, it's an interesting. It's it, it's part technical, um, and it's all it's a little bit fashion. But uh, in my case, uh, I go to the uh, the outlet shops at Polo because I can't spend one hundred and fifty dollars a shirt. But it's uh, it works well, and it's easily dis distinguished from my background. So I go for solid colors. Good, Jason. 
at well over six feet and maybe 145 soaking wet, the number of places that I can get a shirt is like extremely limited. And Banana Republic just seems to fit right off the rack. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, Eddie Bauer. It's hard for me. I can't even shop in a store anymore. It's like, ah, 2XL. Do you have 3XL? <laughs> Yes, that is a problem. Yeah, the, the the COVID effect. Yeah, the um that hasn't worn off yet. Uh, yeah, the um uh most of my stuff is Banana Republic. Uh, most of my shirts are Banana Republic or Getty or Time Bahama. So the one this one is a Banana Republic. Almost all the other ones you see are Time Bahamas that I've had for since sometime in the middle of uh, of um, COVID, and they all sit on a rack right there. So I don't, they don't leave the build. I don't want to, I don't want them to get, they're expe- they were expensive. The time have they ever ones. been washed, Alex? Yes, they have. They have. Oh, okay. they get, they're dry cleaned. So they're, um, so it's not, uh, yeah. So um, for the most part, the, the time of ones are dry cleaned. This one can just be washed. And, um, but uh, I, I literally wear them when I'm on air and then I go back to, you'll see me, if you, if you come in before the show, you'll see my general, my standard state, which is some, usually some plaid um, shirt, usually a plaid flannel is, is kind of my, um, my, my, I was talking to someone about this, about you always make decisions. They're, they're like, well, you just wear what you wear. And I'm like, everybody makes a decision about what they wear. I said, my, you know, my, my resting state are um, ripstop uh, shorts with um, a flannel. <laughs> and and some some kind of t-shirt underneath it and i've worn the same thing left to my own devices for about 40 years <laughs> like it's not like like i haven't changed at all and so if you leave me alone that's immediately what i'll re- i'll revert to um just it's just my comfort zone and um when 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 grunge showed up i felt like they just come to my you know come and join my camp so um so anyway uh so that's you know uh that's that's pretty much what I wear. So if I wear anything other than that, I've made a decision that I should probably dress up to some degree um, from, from my, my my resting state. Any uh, epic yeah. fails of shirts? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm pretty conservative about my shirts. I don't wear a lot of crazy shirts. Yeah, I, I just I, gray, dark, cool colors. That's it. Next question. Next question is from Jack Rappel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Does the panel have any suggestions for introducing a new concept or correcting prior falsehoods using Wikipedia? Go, Jason. Wikipedia is all about reputation, so don't think that you're going to create an account and make any edit that's going to change immediately. What you really should be doing is is revising and correcting and then, you know, be prepared to argue about any change that you make. And once you have a reputation, then um, chances are one of your edits will stick. Yeah, the first thing you want to, to, to push anything in Wikipedia, it's oftentimes nowadays, it's years, years of editing other things and adding other things to it and, and building up your, to exactly what Jason's talking about, building it up or knowing somebody that is already connected inside of Wikipedia. Um, and then what another thing, if it's incorrect, you can you can try to reach the folks that are in the, you know, in the discussion or, or annotate it in the discussion and, and, um, and then they can, you can hopefully persuade them to put the stuff back. I know with my Wikipedia page, it's, it's, uh, it drives me crazy because it was really long for a while and then it got short and then it got long and now it's short. It's like, it's always like moving around and I don't, I'm like, I don't know who is doing this. Yeah, go to Courtney. Yeah. I found that, uh, people tend to moderate, uh, a bit get, uh, uh, very fierce in their moderation of certain Wikipedia pages. If you put something in, it'll be there for a day and then it's gone. 
Uh, and if you don't do multiple citations for whatever you're putting in there, put citations in the footnotes, all the stuff that shows up in the footnotes where uh, uh, you add something or remove something, uh, you're going to have to have multiple citations and it's going to have to be run by a bunch of other people who all can get in there and pull it out or stick new stuff in that's different. So it's a long road to hoe as, as, yeah. as Alex said. Uh, next question. From Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, Gordon asks, with Zoom ISO pulling eight 1080p video streams into a Mac Mini and then sending the audio over Dante to the mixer, does that put stress on the network? If you're sending the, the 1080p streams as an NDI stream, it would definitely put pressure on the network. Uh, if you're not, it will put some pressure on the network. Dante tends to just grab onto a big chunk of your bandwidth and want to hold onto it. So it will, I mean, but it won't put any undue pressure that you wouldn't normally have on a network um, unless you have a lot of other things. But it, it does depend on how you're distributing those 1080p streams. So if you are, um, if those streams are going out as NDI, you will put a lot of pressure on your network. If they're not, then it won't be a problem. Next question. From John Born Trader, Trader from, um, I'm not sure where, somewhere out there. Uh, is anyone going to VCon this week? I think this is Gary V's, um, uh, Gary Vanderchuk's, uh, Vanderchuk's um, uh, conference. And I don't know anybody going. People were talking about it. Uh, he he, he kind of spins it up, but I, I actually have never gone to it or seen known anybody that went to it. But this, it seemed, he usually gets a lot of people to show up. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, asking, can Taskade replace Zoom for team meetings, collaborative on the same page with built-in video chat, screen sharing, and real-time syncing? Go, John. The answer is no. The, 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 amount of in, the amount of investment in infrastructure that Zoom and Team has installs, you can't match that. And that's the reason why you're seeing these software switchers moved from their proprietary video platforms into Zoom as the backbone as a utility. And you just you just can't match that. I mean, we've been on for over three years now. We've had one day of a failure, so that's the important consideration. Yeah, I, I haven't been able to take a look at it, um, but uh, I would be um, surprised if anything. I mean, there's a time when all the railroads and all the oil companies and all the things were a bunch of little companies that all did their own thing, and then what happens in every industry is that kind of consolidates, <laughs> and then you really have to have something that's different to to, to stick out. I think that the video conferencing market has consolidated. And as a result, I just don't think that there's a look. There's, I wouldn't, this is not a, not a vertical I would go into unless I was a multi-billion dollar company. And, and even then chances of, it, what's amazing is you look at, you know, Zoom is, um, you know, there's other big companies like Google and Teams and, or Google and, 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 and you know, Microsoft and Cisco, and none of them are close. <laughs> like, like, like I, I use them all, all every day, uh, almost every day. Well, every week I, I'm in all of those platforms and none of them are close to Zoom. So it's, that's the, that's going to be the, so if you're a little company, I think that the, it would be difficult. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael. I read that SoFi Stadium is an all Dante facility, including boxes and other spaces within the stadium. When a house system takes a feed from a touring system, would you use Avio connected to the touring console or use a direct Dante link? Uh, you probably would not use it. I don't know. I, I don't know what they would do. I would avoid taking a Dante link at almost all costs. And the reason is for clocking. Clocking is a is a is an issue in Dante. Um, even in a facility that has all of these things, you can just get into all kinds of clocking errors. And so, um, you know, you can, and we have done it, 
But the way we do it almost all the time is how we have a stage box and we put another stage box next to it. We take analog feeds and we just feed them between the two. And that may seem like a crazy old fashioned thing to do, but it really has solved so many. It, it saves us like days and days and days of stuff is just to not try to do anything that's digital that might have some clocking error. We go, you know, we want that jump to be really, you know, often, again, it's two stage boxes oftentimes just sitting next to each other. And we just run them between the two and get what we need out of it. Um, and it's, it's worked better than connecting. Uh, we, you know, if, if you have a highly technical team and SoFi does and, the, and on both sides, you might be able to merge that, merge that together. But um, you, you have to decide who is going to be, who's going to run the Dante network, having two Dante networks trying to, you know, it's, yeah, it's, I've tried it, have not very successfully very often. Uh, next question. John Snyder, Reno, Nevada asking, Apple's new accessibility features include the option to create a facsimile of your voice if you're at risk of losing it. It requires 15 minutes of training on random phrases. You suppose this is to prevent deep fakes or is there a practical reason? Go, Jason. No, I, I think just like, um, who was the movie critic that lost his voice? Roger Ebert. Thank you. Just like Roger Ebert, I think there's a very practical and just right in the, staring you right in the face reason to digitize your voice. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think they use it on Val Kilmer for his lines in the latest uh, Top Gun movie because he has lost his voice, unfortunately. Uh, so this this company can do that, and it is for people that want to still uh, speak in their own voice who have had a, a laryngectomy when they remove their larynx uh, because of cancer or some other type of, of disease. So uh, it's a great accessibility feature, I think, for uh, offering that to uh, people who see that coming yeah i i feel like to i would love to know what the version if, if i was going to lose my voice and someone said you could do this in 15 minutes i would ask okay what's the 20 hour version you know like like what is the you know because when when siri was trained you know that the woman who did it i mean i've talked about it she, she was doing it every week for a long time of different phrases and different things and so i would want to know if i thought i was going to lose my voice i would definitely want to um i would definitely want to know like how can I map the entire everything I could possibly say accurately? Uh, you know, so so I think that's a. Although with mine, with anybody who's been on the panel could probably just pass the panel uh, their own stuff into it, and it would figure it out for better. Or for I was worse. just going to say, Alex. I know. I apologize. I don't have the hand raise tool where yeah. I'm at, but but there's like hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of your voice yeah. on office hours and uh, twit and all kinds of other things. So, you know, there, there's resources available. I think to it's train. okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Nick. We'll, we'll be with Nick in just a second here. Uh, one last question for the first hour. Paul Wallace uh, from Austin, Texas. Rewind AI is a Mac OS app search engine that records everything you've seen, said, or heard and makes it searchable and stores it highly compressed only on your local storage, not in the cloud. What will be the impact? And go ahead, Jason. Uh, we've been asked about this in the past on the panel, and um, the answer is yeah, not much. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, the impact is that data will be subpoenaed by the court when they're investigating you for some crime you've committed. Yeah, I think it's a horrible idea. All right. We are now jumping subjects uh, and jumping into our second hour. And we're here with Nick Jashishin from Drexel University. And we're going to talk about camera tracking and lens tracking. Nick, can you give us a little bit of an overview? Yeah. So uh, 
I'm here in the studio at uh, Drexel University, and I guess you should be able to see down in our little super source here, kind of a, a studio view uh, off to one side. This is Chelsea, by the way. Chelsea's going to help me out with some of the camera stuff. Um, and behind the desk, Lara's going to show camera four, where we have a, another little crew uh, doing all of our switching and everything. So from furthest to closest to the camera, that's John, Nikki, and Lara. Um, and just as a plug, uh, all four of these students know this technology really, really well. And Chelsea is looking for a summer internship. And John and Nikki are looking for six-month co-ops uh, that would start in the fall. So if you need this kind of skill set, send me an email and uh, I'll, I'll make sure to connect you there. But, uh, but that's one thing to note is it takes this team of four to be able to run all of this equipment and... Um, you know, so that I can be free just to explain it. So there, there, there's part of the overview. Uh, but if we can go ahead and switch back to, let's say, uh, the, the, this overview view. So um, what we're talking about here is being able to track the position and lens of a camera in real time. Uh, when we work in feature films, the camera movement is analyzed after the fact in post-production. The uh, imagery that that camera captured is moving with with what we call parallax, so that as the camera moves, objects that are closer to the camera are moving in the frame faster than objects further distant. And software can analyze that video after the fact and calculate how that camera moved. But if we're in a live broadcast setting, we need to calculate that instantly uh, and feed that into our 3D systems. And so that's the kind of stuff we're going to talk about here. Uh, so I have kind of like uh, two different versions of this to show. Uh, Laura, if you get camera three, I think pointed at uh, preset number four, uh, that should be good. And uh, Nikki, we can bring up uh, camera four. There we go. Um, so this, this is kind of like the, the cheap version of this. And, um, what I have here is, uh, this is just a pocket cine camera. I have to add a little bit of light to it. And, and connected to the lens is something called a, uh, uh, LOLED, uh, indie tracker. And so it is just a small, uh, rotary encoder. So I can Maybe actually just sense. remove this from the camera here. So it's, a, it's, say that, uh, Who makes oh, the that? company, the company that makes it is LOLED. Mm -hmm. So this is just a uh, USB connectable, uh, rotary encoder. So this wheel here turns, uh, it gets pressed up against the lens. And so as the focus or iris of the lens is moved, uh, that is detected by this rotary. And then a USB connector can connect that into the computer and whatever software is being used, such as a, uh, such as Unreal Engine, can then know where is the lens set. So I'm just trying to position this back in. And uh, there we go. Let me turn off my light. I'm trying to juggle too many things. But that, that way, what's really important is it's not just the position of the camera, but it is the, the lens settings. Because if the lens has more or less zoom or the focus point of the lens is different, it affects the... Uh, it affects the lens distortion, and uh, we want to mimic the focus range in the uh, uh, virtual camera as well. And then in terms of tracking at this indie level, and that um, this tracker, I think, is in the $500 range. 
Um, and then the, the lowest cost of point of entry for tracking the position of the camera would be to put a Vive tracker puck on here. So it's like a Vive controller, but it's just a disc. And you have a couple of these base stations. These are broadcasting a laser pattern that's in a synchronized grid. And the puck actually detects every time that laser crosses over its sensors. And that way the puck knows exactly where it is and how it's rotated relative to this tower. And we usually use two or three of these. And then that data, just like it would be used to track for virtual reality, can actually be fed into something like Unreal Engine to track the position, the rotation of the camera. Um, you can do that with actually just a consumer Vive system, uh, but you might run into like, it's not designed to be full broadcast synchronization like Genlocked and all of that. Uh, but uh, HTC does make something called a Mars system that's about $5,000. And that's just a dedicated tracking box that does have Genlock sync and um, is designed to use Can you describe what Gen why Genlock makes a difference? So yeah, so Genlock Sync, um, we can uh, switch guys back to the, uh, I guess, camera four or something like that. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so Genlock Sync is that there's multiple cameras in here, and there's a switcher, and there might be keyers and all of that kind of stuff. And each piece of equipment should be in perfect sync as to when it, whether if it's a camera, it should be opening and closing its shutter exactly the same time across every single camera. And then every device and every computer processing that video should be operating at exactly, not just the same frame rate, but at exactly the same moment, and essentially processing the frame at the beginning of the frame and closing out the frame at exactly the same time. And so that's what Genlock is. It's, it's basically a pulse. It's, it doesn't give us time at all. It's just saying now, 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 now. And then that'll do that. Um, you know, you can have it set for 30 frames a second, 60 frames a second. I know uh, Fox Sports Broadcast has actually genlocked their studio at 240 frames a second, and that allows them to have multiple images on different screens for, you know, to the benefit of different cameras. But anyway, that's what genlock is. It's just synchronizing the, the frames of every device in your uh, chain. And that's where, you know, more expensive production gear comes into play is is the equipment that's designed to accept Genlock and to to work with that kind of thing. So $5,000 is kind of the entry point for that tracking wise, because that brings us to the uh, the Vive uh, Mars system. And and that can that's actually used in, in streaming scenarios. And, and that's great. So um, but you know, the next thing is that like, I've kind of got a, a, a just throw everything on it camera here. Um, and so you have this a lot one, of versions. There's a, a couple different systems, right, on that? Exactly. So on this camera, uh, we have two things happening. Uh, one is that uh, if we can go on uh, camera three, I think it's position one. Um, let's change to position three on that. So in addition to the cameras that you're seeing, by the way, we have some PTZs. And so I'm just calling out uh, locations for, for Laura to pick out on those cameras for the operation. So the first thing to see is this um, section here. And these are reflective markers. So the, each of these little balls has the same material on it that might be on the back of a jogging suit or running shoes so that if you're jogging at night, headlights bounce directly back to the driver and they can see you. Um, for us, we have motion capture cameras uh, set up for this. I forget what position the motion capture camera was. Was that uh, 
Is that there? You picked it out. There we go. So um, all around the room, this is actually camera 12 out of 12 that are positioned all the way around this room. And you'll see that the camera lens has a ring around it. That's infrared LEDs. So that's firing LED light into the room. And then that LED light bounces off the reflectors in the camera and goes right back to that lens. Um, yeah, perfect. And then, John, if you can bring up Shogun. And uh, Nikki, if we can switch that to our main camera. That's Unreal. So there we go, Shogun. All right. So the software that we have working that track the camera is this Shogun software. So this system is made by Vicon. They make all the hardware, the cameras, as well as this software. Um, John, are you able to zoom in to the location of camera one for me? On the Shogun? Yeah, there you go. Just use the mouse wheel, I think, zooms in. Oh, Lara's got it. Cool. Uh, Chelsea, why don't you come over to this camera here? And um, so what you're seeing is the tracking results. So Chelsea, if you just grab the camera and, and move it back and forth, you know, we'll see. And are, the, in, and are the triangles that we see there, are those the rigid bodies? Yes. So hopefully that is tracking. I'm not sure if you can see it very well. Let's, um, how about tilt it down and up? Is that going to work easy? It's probably not. Hold on to that handle. Yep. There you go. There, now we're seeing it. Okay, so now move it up and down. So essentially, each little white dot is one of the markers in our system. And uh, the cluster of markers or the constellation of markers are then interpreted by the software as this is where the camera is. So Chelsea, if you pan like way off to the right, we might be losing the tracking or, or we may be pushing the limits of our network in terms of uh, that movement. But essentially that will move around live with the, uh, yeah. the movement of the camera. And and, so I guess one, and one of the advantages here, right, would be that you would, um, with a motion capture, if you're dealing with a motion capture camera inside of a motion capture environment with other motion capture actors, mm -hmm. it's, it's a way, you know, it's kind of the Lord of the Rings kind of a solve, right? Exactly. Yeah, so that, that's the key advantage of the... Um, the Vicon system is that we're not limited to simply tracking a single camera. So with the, um, you know, for the Vive Mars, for example, you'll need a separate puck for every single camera. Um, for the Vicon system, we get as, as many of these reflective balls as we can get, we can track that, you know, more and more cameras. And we could even have someone wearing a suit performing a CG character like a robot or an alien or something like that. And all of that could be tracked by the Vicon system all at once. And um, so that's the the camera tracking uh, in terms of position and rotation. And then uh, on this camera, we have a few more tracking uh, items. So and what's the I think what's the frame rate on the on the Vicon? The Vicon system, we can dial that up to six hundred frames a second yeah. if we wanted to, and that it doesn't really break a sweat at 300, 600. Mm -hmm. um, we actually just keep it a nice leisurely one twenty usually, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, and that helps us with interpreting motion blur and, uh, you know, being as accurate as possible per. We're shooting our studio set up at uh, 30p. So we're doing 30 frames a second progressive. And so we're getting about four Vicon tracking frames per video frame. And that oversample also lets you filter and manage things, right? To, to make sure that, like, if you had one frame per, you know, by having four frames for every frame that you have in video, you can, you have some, you, you, you have some room for error, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. So both the Vicon system and downstream systems like Unreal Engine have filtering options to do, you know, variations of weighted moving average and other algorithms to, to smooth out that data stream. I, the only question I have there is, do you still use a Butterworth? Do you still use the Butterworth filter? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, that's yeah, Butterworth in Motion Builder in terms of uh, character post-production. Uh, yeah, I learned that from you about 15 years ago. Uh, and uh, that, that filter is used. And much to my uh, delight, the Unreal Engine actually has the Butterworth filter built in as well. So when we're doing mocap cleanup or adjustment inside Unreal, like we, we have access to that filter right in the engine. So that's nice. Um, so with this camera, instead of just a, the other camera I was showing was a prime lens, and so we were only tracking the um, uh, focus. This lens is a uh, iris zoom and focus, and it's 100% manual lens. And so we actually have three encoders. So this encoding system is from a company called uh, Digital Camera Systems, uh, DCS. I think their website's dcs.film. Um, so this, this is a top of the line, uh, lens tracking system. And what we have here is three of those encoders. We have, uh, older wired versions. They actually have wireless versions at this point where you could put them on a, uh, this is a fully manual lens. And, um, Chelsea, if I can have you just adjust focus for a little bit, hopefully on this side, you'll be able to see a little bit of the, uh, the lens, the encoder moving. Uh, we're zoomed in about as much as I can get it. So like move it a lot. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So you see the, the lens is moving and that's because Chelsea's turning a focus knob with her hand, but then the rotary encoder is following that. And we have an encoder for focus. We have an encoder for zoom and a, a, an encoder for iris. So all of that data is being captured. And then, um, if we can do position one, Lara, on the same camera. Yeah, there we go. So all of those are daisy chained into this box, which is part of the DCS system. And so this is a dedicated computer that's calculating that. Um, the, the focus is a little fuzzy, but what we're actually able to see here is a display that is a readout of that manual lens. So we pre-calibrated that lens. And so this lens has zoom from like 20 millimeters to 55 millimeters. And so if I were to move that zoom, there's an indicator alt, you know, adjusting in this display telling me what my exact zoom setting is. And so I can read that out. Uh, this actually also has an inertial measurement unit, IMU. So it is also measuring the angle, the tilt of the camera. And so this is often used by uh, DITs, the digital information tech on uh, set to basically capture uh, fundamental camera information. And we also have the iris and one of the, my favorite features about this readout is that it actually takes in the focus and your iris and will give you the mathematical um, bracket for what your depth of field is in terms of your focus. So you know just by glancing at it, okay, I've got from five feet to six feet is my focus zone. And everything outside of that range is going to be uh, bokeh blurred out. So so those that's the hardware side of it. Um, John, if you can, I'll tab your way over to Unreal Engine. And uh, Nikki, you can switch to Unreal on the uh, uh, main part of the Zoom. Yeah, so there we go. So um, we ingest all of that data into Unreal Engine. So I'm just going to hop over to the engine here. 
And uh, right here, you're actually seeing the Unreal Engine response to the data that is uh, going through, um, you're coming in from our uh, camera generator. So if I were to switch to that camera, so now you can see this. So uh, Chelsea, go ahead and adjust focus. And keep dialing, keep going that way, keep going that way, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And... All right, that's good. All right, and now just move the camera left and right a little bit. Yep, there you go. So what you're seeing is the camera inside Unreal Engine that's responding to all of that motion. So uh, what we have happening here is I'm just going to open a window called Live Link. And so under virtual production and live link, um, it may be difficult to read, but essentially we have an input from Vicon. We have an input from the DCS system. I've got green lights for both of those. If, for example, I were to select this DCS, um, I can scroll down here to my telemetry and da, 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 somewhere in here, I should be able to see that. Let's click on here. All right, so uh, Chelsea, your zoom setting right now is 32 millimeters. Go ahead and adjust your zoom. Yep, keep dial that zoom. There we go, zoom in, zoom in. And you can see in the background the uh, Unreal Engine is responding to that. And then we've got the data coming in here. And so I, you know, with the time I had this morning getting ready for today's broadcast, we didn't tie this into an ultimate keyer, but normally what we would do then is have this Unreal Engine camera that you're seeing would be um, fed in as the background for an ultimate keyer, and the foreground would be the green screen shot that the uh, camera that Chelsea's been moving is actually seeing, you know, with a green screen background. We can switch back to, uh, yeah, there we go. Um, so then, uh, the key would put, you know, essentially me and this camera over an Unreal Engine background and anything that any movement or change in lens setting for the camera that uh, is seeing me in the green screen would then be reflected in the Unreal Engine background live as well. And that's that's it. That's the overview. Yeah. And, and so the um, and, and for the if the panelists have specific questions, go ahead and raise your hand inside of the uh, discussion. Um, the uh, but a couple things there. Um, the when you're um how many cameras have you set up in that studio okay how many can you put together so we're set up for th uh, three at this point we have three right. ultimate units and we put each camera into its own ultimate unit and so what we normally do is we have the ultimate 12 hd which is a half rack mount unit and it's about 800 dollars um, that one is the one that we usually use for our uh, Blackmagic studio cameras. So we have two of those. So that's SDI out of the studio camera, SDI out of Unreal Engine. Unreal Engine is the background, the camera is the foreground, the key happens. The nice thing about those is Unreal can also generate uh, a garbage mat around our green screen. So if we were to pan the camera above the green screen, Unreal would feed the ultimate a garbage mat for that. And all of the trussing and everything above the green screen would be um, Unreal Engine scene, even though it's not green screen. So, so, so Unreal Engine is not clipping it out in Unreal Engine. It's sending out a garbage mat back to... Uh, to, to the, the ultimate. Mat. Yeah, black and white garbage mat. So from Unreal, we can send both a garbage mat and a holdout mat. So if we were to have, say... Uh, uh, a display screen, right? A, a video screen on set. 
and that video screen might show green. We don't know who's mm-hmm. who's going to come in on that, or or maybe the audio gauge is going to have green in it. So we can three-dimensionally in the Unreal scene say, hey, this is where the, the video screen is. Send holdout mat for this. And then the ultimate will make sure that that screen is solid camera view, even if it has green in it. So that way um, it doesn't get transparent by accident. That's what the holdout mat is. And then the garbage mat is saying all this area is garbage. It's the area that's outside of where the physical green screen is. It's to the left, it's to the right, it's above. And um, that needs to be transparent virtual set, even if it's not green. And so those two black and white masks can be generated and sent from Unreal as SDI signals into the Ultimate 12 HD. And so that the Ultimate 12 HD will respect those and incorporate those into the key. And you're saying, and, and, and as you're moving, what, what needs to be done there can be changing in, in real time. So what Unreal sending out is not a holdout, but it's like a, that holdout could be tracked essentially exactly. in, right? If you're moving. So if, so if you have a perfect 3D model of that screen, you can have a holdout map that, that keeps on being sent correctly to ho- always hold that screen in place. Exactly. Yep. So we could put Vicon trackers on the television screen. Television mm-hmm. screen can be on a cart and we can move that around. Vicon will tell Unreal where the screen is right now. And that holdout map will follow it three-dimensionally. Go ahead, Mitchell. Nick, uh, thanks. First of all, that's an excellent uh, demonstration. How many people does it take to run that room? Right now, I mean, name the different positions and different software or hardware they're dealing with. Sure. So right now, we've actually got uh, two more folks arrived just in case. So we have backup as uh, Alex likes to operate at 40 to 60%. We're, we're, we're doing that. Um, so uh, in this particular setup, and I've got, uh, let's go ahead, Laura, back to, the, to showing the crew. And so John on the far and is operating the Vicon system, and he's switching back and forth between showing Unreal Engine and Vicon. So he's he's doing switching for the bottom panel that you're seeing in our SuperSource. Um, he's also monitoring the the tracking, you know, the the Vicon system itself. So then, in between him and Lara is Nikki, and Nikki is running our ATEM. So he's running the SuperSource. Uh, he's got an iPad running MixEffect in front of him. And so he's just operating the, the constellation that's taking all of these video feeds in. And then Lara, closest to the camera, she is operating the PTZ cameras. So in uh, ahead of the show, she was here, like we were pre-programming some preset positions for the PTZs. And so uh, she's operating the PTZ cameras. And then we have Chelsea, um, hopefully you can see her in the top frame of our super source. Uh, she is, uh, operating on set on camera. So I don't have to do everything. Um, so we would need generally one camera operator per camera. So, uh, and, and at least three people at the console, if we're doing this particular setup, um, I would say that normally we would have, uh, that kind of a crew going on. Normally, the ultimates are really good in we're able to set them up before the show. We've got all the lighting on, everything's warmed up. And so we can double check our keys 
and they usually don't need uh, babysitting. Uh, that's the one thing that that's why I love them. Honestly, is like you just set them up and then they're good to go. So we don't usually need unless we have backup. So we have Christine and Annie are also here. You haven't gotten to see them yet, but but they're uh, here in case somebody needs to jump in and, and take care of something else. So um, all of that for a show, and then you know I'm I'm your lack of talent on screen, and um, you know that I, I don't have to do anything. And <laughs> going, go Courtney. Yeah, if your if your virtual set has uh, foreground objects that you want to pass the subject that's on the green screen stage in back of, how is that handled? Is it handled as a separate key layer? Does it generate a holdback map? Um, do you have to build something in the set uh, for that that's going to appear in front of the people in the green screen that is a virtual uh, prop, let's say, or a doorway? Yeah, um, so that's basically on a case by case basis. So, uh, you know, one example would be if we wanted to have something that didn't exist in the real world, right? We want a, um, a virtual demonstration of a Saturn V rocket, right? So that rocket needs to appear and someone needs to gesture to the capsule is up here and, you know, the, the different stages are below. We might just drop a C stand in to stand for it and put a couple pieces of tape for these are, you know, to, you know, basically guiding the, the person that's on camera to like, Hey, this is where the capsule is. That's the blue piece of tape. And the red piece of tape is where the stages separate. And so there's something for them to act against. And, and that would and, be off, and off the, screen. That'd be like on the other side of the camera. So they have a place to put it. It could so. be physically in the spot that the, uh, the, thing's going to appear as long as you were always going to keep the rocket there. Right. But yeah, it could be off camera. Um, right. and you know, we can also do, uh, teleprompters and, you know, I'm looking at our camera one and behind camera one is a really big screen that's showing me the zoom meeting right now. So the, the person that's on screen can, or on camera can see what the final output is. Right. Incidentally, that's one of the other cool things about the black magic studio cameras is, they can take in a feed from the uh, ultimate constellation result. And so the camera operator can actually see what their camera view looks like fully composited. So they could switch back and forth between their raw camera view, which is green screen, but they could also view uh, the, the resulting key. And that's on a per camera basis. Yeah. One of the things that we found really useful, we started doing this kind of camera tracking maybe almost 20 years ago, I think. And uh, and, 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 but it was with all CG. So it wasn't keying anything. It wasn't tracking the cameras. It was just using digital cameras and being able to do that on set and have the handhelds and figure out where you're going to put the shots and have the actor, you know, a demo, you know, a demo actor. So, I mean, we're camp right now we're, we're compositing those in, but being able to do it in a completely CG shot in, uh, in unreal is, is pretty, uh, pretty useful for previs, right? Yeah. And actually, uh, especially for previs, um, one thing to know is Epic has an iOS app, so you can get that for your phone or iPad, and it's called Virtual Camera, and um, it's a free download. And essentially, it gives your phone a a live link connection over this over the network, so it could be Wi-Fi or Ethernet um, to Unreal Engine. And so the telemetry, you know, your camera in your uh, phone is able to use its IMU and, and cameras for tracking itself. And so just like the Vicon system is feeding our cameras in Unreal right now, you could use your iOS device 
just to experiment with it. Or, you know, one of the things that we have done is gone out with an iPad Pro with LiDAR, scanned a location with the iPad Pro, take that model, export it as FBX or USD, bring it into Unreal Engine at scale. And now you can use that same iPad or phone as a, a digital virtual scouting tool. So we could figure out where, where do we go and we get that angle that looks good. And we can zoom in, zoom out. What lens would we need for that to look proper? Um, and does it actually fit there? Is there a piece of furniture there? Is there a wall divider? And so all of that can be done, um, you know, with a quick advanced visit. And then you could, you know, use weeks or months of you to have that location in your computer. And, and you can do that completely free. So Unreal Engine's free. The iOS app is free. They, I think both, all of these features do actually work on both Mac and PC. And so, um, you know, that, that stuff is, uh, completely doable. Hmm. Maybe a future Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, I think that'd be great, you know, as to, to, to kind of put that stuff together. Uh, got, got a couple questions rolling in. Let's go ahead to the first question. First one in from James Fossling in Minneapolis, Minnesota. James wants to know, are your students doing something like a weekly production using these tools to get all this down? Uh, yeah, so I'm actually in the process of running a class called Live Event Virtual Production. And so that meets once a week on Thursdays. And we're building up to running a live webinar event. So thank you for asking that question. Uh, so on June 1st, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, um, we're going to run a full virtual production with all of this equipment, uh, with the green screens, the compositing running. That crew is about 20 students. And they all started here about uh, six weeks ago with no knowledge of any of this stuff. And we've been ramping them up over the last six weeks. Uh, Alex graciously visited the class last week and uh, Put the uh, basically shared every horror story imaginable about what could happen, and <laughs> um, imaginable. That's all you need. Yeah, it was just it was it, it was amazing because Alex explained all that goes into preparing for a, a live uh, event uh, with all of his productions, and immediately after he disconnected, all of the students came rushing up to me like, "Okay, I need to get my." you know, prep stuff done. Like everyone wanted to know, how do I get ready for this event that's three weeks away? So that was the first time I've ever had students coming in asking me to work on stuff three weeks in advance. So that was awesome. Um, so anyway, uh, I think in the office hours uh, email, it's probably showing up as a uh, partner event or collaborator event. Alex is going to be in involved in that event. But for that, over the, you know, six weeks that have led up to now, the students have been building out a fully custom virtual set in Unreal. Um, and then every one of those 20 students has a job in the live event, whether it's operating cameras, operating switchers, handling audio, handling lower thirds and data. There's data systems. We had to, we, we kind of cobbled together. Actually, it was Nikki kind of cobbled together our own mini Mukana, uh, so that we're able to, uh, to take in questions and bring them into lower thirds. So, so this class is teaching all of these techniques uh, to those students. And uh, when they finish up in uh, June 1st, is it like at the end of that event, it's just, I think we're, we're planning a barbecue or something like that for the week after that. <laughs> Next question. Another one for uh, Nick and his crew from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Uh, Roscoe wants to know, has the availability of lower cost camera tracking systems caused a growth in the mocap or are you missing technical skills still hindering growth? What industries are growing the fastest and where do you students want to work? 
Oh, okay. So um, the the industry that's growing the fastest is uh, internet live streaming, and because it is much more accessible. I mean, really, most of what we're doing, even just running a camera and broadcasting it, used to be exclusive to you know major broadcast networks and um, you know at the very best a local television station. So the availability of the cameras uh, is is huge. Um, for us, you know, we've we've grown out of a department that we've been teaching feature film visual effects for uh, 25 years at this point. So we've had a motion capture system here for at least 15 of those years. And uh, it's just that the interconnectivity, it's the real-time graphics. So 15 years ago, when, when Alex and I, you know, when Alex was first introducing motion capture to me, um, the fidelity of the graphics you could do with it was at basically, um, golden eye on the N Nintendo 64. That was kind of the, the upper echelon of graphics capabilities at that time, particularly with real time. But today, uh, with things like Unreal Engine, we can generate almost near photorealistic, uh, imagery at comfortably 60 frames a second. And so uh, that software is completely free. So students, professionals can download that, uh, get up to speed and learn it and um, and put it to use. So that software availability and capability is huge. Um, yeah, having cameras that you know we can get for less than a couple thousand dollars a piece uh, that are connected into these constellations. Again, uh, a uh, Constellation 2ME, you know, at the HD level, it's, it's like a couple thousand dollars and it's actually a little less than that. So it, you know, price wise, if you're doing a corporate event, if I am doing a, an educational event, you know, we're bringing this stuff in so that our students are brought up to speed so that they're ready to, to find those jobs in the um, industry and they already have familiarity with it so that they know what SDI is and they know how to route all of these things and they know how to uh, handle video and PTZ and, and, and just know how critical a live broadcast is and all the prep work that goes into that. So I don't know. Um, I know you guys are looking for, some of you are looking for positions and internships. Um, you know, I, Chelsea's a game design major. So the Unreal Engine side of things are, are, tends to be interesting to her. Another thing that she uh, specializes in is the the LiDAR scanning and uh, photogrammetry, you know, capturing the real world and getting it into the virtual. Um, you know, uh, Nikki has actually been working in uh, live event streaming now for a couple of years for a uh, uh, esports broadcasting company called uh, eFuse, right? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of like an office hours, except for a video game sports. And, uh, John is also been working on this virtual production space. Lara has been, um, working a lot in motion capture specifically and, uh, in Unreal Engine, uh, creation. And so the nice thing about this platform of skills is they're applicable in a lot of industries. It could be a game design company that either has motion capture or building out scenes and characters in Unreal Engine. It could be an animation or visual effects television show or movie uh, like Mandalorian. We have alumni that are at ILM, you know, working on those kind of productions. So um, it could be, a, you know, live broadcast for a show or episodic or it could be corporate events and um, and you know live streaming events and, and sales things and all that sort of thing. So uh, so yeah, I, I think right now they're they're ready to jump in wherever uh, wherever they can be put to use.
Yeah, the the interesting thing is is that you know, 15 years ago we were even well, we got our first mocap system, which was a little USB based um, motion capture system. For, we paid it yeah, off OptiTrack. in one, yeah, the OptiTrack, and paid it off in one job. <laughs> like the very first job that came in was just doing corporate animation. You know, it was like little examples of how to use a product or a way to visualize someone using the product, and we just in one day we just captured all the all the footage that was necessary, and then and then we. Um, uh, and then after that, we got a you know another bigger, much much larger job that definitely uh, paid it down. And so it's just a matter of knowing where you're going to get the work to to come in. It was it's a lot of fun. Uh, let's go to the next question. Steve Martin from Orlando, Florida, asked: We've had pretty good success with the Bliss Tracker. How is the approach you're using with the mocap cameras different? Better? Have you used the, the Bliss? Bliss? Bliss, I'm not actually even familiar with. Um, so hopefully there's a little bit of a follow-up on that. Um, one of the, I don't, I don't know how the Bliss system works itself, but one type of tracker that I did uh, not cover, I just don't have one here, is uh, a dedicated camera tracking system. Uh, two companies that come to mind are Mosis and um, Stipe, S-T-Y-P-E. Uh, Mosis is M-O-S-Y-S. And what they do is they basically flip the mocap system inside out. So where we have motion capture cameras all around our uh, stage, instead, the motion capture camera is mounted one camera to the, the anim cam, the, the camera, you know, show camera. And that motion capture camera can be pointed either up at the ceiling or down at the floor, and the reflective markers go there. So... Um, the reflective markers might be called a star constellation. In a, in a broadcast studio setting, you usually put them on the ceiling. And so the, the one mocap camera sees them as reflections and as a star constellation. Uh, in an NFL or NBA kind of scenario where a camera might be getting set up in a venue and then taken down and put away uh, or taken somewhere else, uh, a lot of times they'll put the reflectors on a piece of like dance marley that just rolls out, rolling out piece of rubber, put all the markers there, have the mocap camera pointed downward. So now the star constellation is on the floor and that allows the movement and position of the camera to be tracked. And so I don't know if that's what the bliss system is, but I thought I'd mention at least those others. Yeah. My understanding is the bliss is using something similar to, you know, what the, um, uh, the kind of the real sense type thing. So it's like, I think it's an infrared, you know, it's kind of building out a, you know, it's stereo, stereo infrared, I believe. And then it's, you know, grabbing that data, much like what we saw with the old Microsoft. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, and those have been fairly, I mean, much more effective than I expected them to be um, as far as being able to grab it. It's probably not the quite the same resolution as what you're seeing in the studio here today, but, but it uh, definitely, um, I've seen a lot of people produce some pretty interesting things. Here's where the tracking really matters is when you're touching things. So when you see people's feet, um, when you see that, you know, so, you, and, and you can work around a lot of things. So if you're using a lower cost version of this, oftentimes you just don't show people's feet or you don't show people touching the things that they need to touch. It's, it's the contact where that's what I find. I mean, Nick, you can let me know if you, if you agree, but I mean, that's where, where people are contacting a CG object in the scene is where you notice the, any issues that you might have with tracking. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And so the nice thing is that this um, the set of mathematics are really mature now. And so built into Unreal Engine is a uh, lens distortion calculation. So that basically you, 
you tell it, I've got a checkerboard. This is how many squares there are, how many uh, centimeters each square is. And there's a process in Unreal where you're taking the SDI feed from your camera, you're moving the checkerboard around, and the um, system in Unreal analyzes that and calculates precisely what the lens distortion is at that focus, zoom, and iris setting. So it's a, a pretty involved process to do that for a range of like your entire range of focus, your entire range of zoom, and your entire range of iris. It'll calculate independent uh, lens distortion values across that entire set of ranges and then blend between those as the data comes in. And then on top of that, once that calibration is done, there's something called an Aruco marker. It looks kind of like a, uh, um, what are those QR codes? It kind of looks like a QR code, a little bit simpler, um, but Aruco is, is what it's called. And so you can literally take the image of an Aruco marker. It's, it's essentially a barcode that is um, unique to like this, uh, this pattern of squares is marker number three of this size. And you can take that image into Unreal Engine and you can lay it on the floor in Unreal Engine in the virtual studio and take the physical copy of that Aruco, lay it on your floor in your studio and say, that's the floor. And then Unreal will reel in the camera tracking value to that uh, with the lens distortion. And from there, all of the camera movement that's coming in from Vicon is considered relative to that starting point. And so that's how you can get the floor contact and have it locked in really nice. Um, usually we try to, to stick into one area, like the further away you get from that calibration point, the, the more possibility can, of error there is. But can yeah. you use more than one marker? You can. Yeah. And you can, you can use different markers for different cameras, right? So each camera could be calibrated independently. Each is going to have their own set of lens values. And so, um, all of that can be worked together. It's, you know, it's like any live event. There's a lot of pre-production work, but then once yeah. it's all calibrated, it just, it just goes. Well, it's funny, you know, that when I started at ILM, they, they were tracking cameras by hand. Like it yep. was literally like a shot and you, and you get the camera report and the camera report was written on paper and it was not always accurate. In fact, it was almost never accurate. It was almost never the right lens. Like you, you look at it and it would say 50, 50 millimeter and you're like, that is not a 50 millimeter lens. Like you got good at knowing what lens it was. And then, and then you put a, a cube in and you get it, you get the camera to where you thought it would look right. And then you start tracking the positions and make, try to have the cube not slide or, or you try to get a model and put it underneath something and try to get it not slide and we it and then we were excited about the fact that we were getting we were able to just push it in push a button and you know for whether it's real viz or or other you know um Buju or many of the other trackers you hit the button and it would just track it all it would just grab a bunch of points and track them all and uh and nick was all in the middle of all of that and and yep. uh but now it's kind of an amazing thing that we can um do it all in real time and key someone in it's yep. come a long way but all of those years. same principles apply i mean that, that all that yeah that effort that went into hand calculating all of that um for films is built into the software and it's still a process you still yeah. manually have to build out that lens table um mm. and, and it, it takes a little bit of time but then once you have it it's it's really nice next question john fultz from ceilings grove pennsylvania asked nick what's the black floor in your studio Oh, um, John, if you can switch on the little ATEM on the 
uh, desk to input number four. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so there's our. Uh, this is the whole studio, and so the flooring that we have here is actually a gymnastics floor routine material. So uh, I think we got this from uh, Rubber Floors or so. I forget what the name of the company is, but it's just uh, the same exact material that would be blue for an Olympics uh, uh, gymnastics event, and it rolls up super easy, right? So our green screen cyclorama that's behind me. Uh, it's green floor under me where I'm at right now. And uh, this uh, rollout floor, it's about three inches, two, two to three inches thick of uh, nice soft foam. And it's carpet. It's a layer of carpet on top. And it's carpet that we can put Velcro into. So when, you know, if we want to mark, uh, you know, someone's uh, position where they need to walk to and where the origin is, we just put a piece of Velcro down. We There's like entire lines of products for nursery schools for doing that. And um, the for the mocap, it's really easy on the the uh, physical performers because, you know, they've got a really nice soft carpet to work on a lot, of, you know, if they're dancing or leaping or whatever. Um, but at the same time, as long as that's down, it's protecting our green screen floor as well. So that um, our, you know, we, we're using a material called GAM floor, G-A-M uh, floor, which is basically vinyl, sticky vinyl. And it comes in rolls that are like three or feet wide or something like that. And so we just stick that onto the floor and that's that's our green floor. And so we, if we need to, we could peel it up or we could just put down another layer if it gets all scuffed up. But um, the first layer of that we put down actually lasted a good solid 10 years that we, by protecting it this way. And so we just recently put down a new layer, um, mainly because we've got a whole slew of compositing classes running right now, along with the live event coming up. So, you, uh, John, you can go, Oh, go ahead. Uh, go no, ahead one question is when you pick the floor, did you, did you look at it through the Vicon cameras, the infrared? No. Um, but I did deliberately choose dark charcoal gray. Well, the, the funny oh. thing is, is that we found that, uh, so when we picked the, the flooring that we used for our mocap studio, we actually bought one of all, a lot of different floorings and one of oh. all the curtains. And we looked at them through our, our, um, our Optitrack, you know, system, but we looked at it through the infrared because what we found was they were all black, but some of them literally looked white. <laughs> To the to the camera, it would they were you know polyester for instance looks white you know to you know in infrared, and so we used it to pick out our curtains. Yeah, <laughs> I think like let's see if someone asked early in the first hour, how can you use infrared? You can use it to so pick out your curtains. I definitely gambled. I did not test this, uh, but mm -hmm. John, if you go back to the ATEM number five, it's number five is from the constellation, and then on uh, multiview, let's go to John's view of Shogun. And uh, John, in Shogun, uh, do you know Shogun, John? How about you switch with Christine? Christine is one of our uh, mocap experts here. And Christine, uh, switch the view to camera view. It's in the, uh, yeah, you got it. There we go. So what you're seeing here is what our Vicon cameras see. So we actually have 16 cameras total. We only have 12 of them set up. We usually have four on the ground as well, but uh, we didn't set them up for that. And you can see a list of them to the left. And um, there may be some blue specks in there, but uh, double click on uh, camera two. 
Okay. So ideally in camera two, are you able to see the dots that are uh, moving for the camera? Yeah, we can see them. So that's all that sees. And we're not getting any signal off of the floor. And even with cameras directly opposite of camera two, shining their infrared light, which would be bouncing up to camera two. Mm -hmm. So we, it worked out like this, this particular floor, charcoal gray, I think it's right. rubberflooring.com. Um, their gymnastics floor, uh, is working great for us. Um, and while we're, while we're in Vicon, go back to the 3D. Uh, oh no. Yeah. 3D view. Uh, select all the cameras and activate rays. You've got the cameras selected and it's under the filter menu to the right of the, yep. And activate rays. And there we go. Zoom out on your view. I think it's, is it? Left mouse, right? Yeah, there you go. So now as I'm moving this camera, you can actually see which cameras in the studio have a, a line of sight on, on the camera and, and they're kind of like laser tracking it. And so that's, um, that's how that system works. And that's how we see all that. Yeah. yeah okay, cool. Courtney, we can go back. I was to wondering, one. I was wondering, uh, Nick, if that uh, soft floor gives you a problem because you move up and down about an inch or so as you sink into the foam. Um, does it look weird? For a degree, uh, yeah. Depends on, uh, like for, for a hefty performer like myself, I, I sink down a little bit lower than some of our lighter performers. So as um, long as we don't see your feet, it's really not yeah, a problem and, yeah. and registering so, the floor in your feet. Yep. So we're calibrating for the level of the carpet. And, um, the one thing is that when we're running green screen studio is the carpet's not down. So we, we roll all of that up. And the nice thing is that this carpet is, uh, four individual pieces that each roll up very quickly. So like one person can get all four of them rolled up and off to the side in about uh, 10 minutes. And when we have a class of students, it, it takes just a couple of minutes to get them all up and out of the way. So generally when we're doing camera tracking, um, the carpet's not down. And uh, when folks are walking on floor that would be green screen and in view of camera, they're walking on a you know concrete floor with the green on it. But the good news is, is that it's a good, it's a great example of general, general relativity. All right. Next question. Next question for John Snyder, Reno, Nevada, asking, what are some unusual ways to use live camera tracking? Ooh, okay. Well, um, I don't know that it's unusual per se, but I think one of my uh, favorite it, things is to do the virtual camera tracking and do a virtual uh, site scouting so that you can use this approach for, um, you know, visiting a site that you don't have ready access to all the time. You can basically go to the site, capture it using your iPad LiDAR and uh, photogrammetry, have a 3D virtual model of that site. And now you can spend as much time there as you like and, uh, you know, move, move your virtual camera anywhere you like and, and really experiment and get an understanding of, well, this is where we can put track. And this is where we can put a tripod and even where we can put the folding tables and, and where the cables will run and things like that. So, um, that, that's one application that I don't think people think about immediately. Um, another thing that we can do with this is we can track props. So if we had a character, for example, who's exploring a cave and they're on green screen and we're live tracking them uh, in camera. This is a live event and all. Um, they could be holding like a big, one of those, you know, big lantern flashlights 
right? And we could be tracking that flashlight. So that as they explore the cave and they move that flashlight, the beam of light from that can be projected in the virtual space from the position of that flashlight. So that as they turn that flashlight, the, the beam of light goes across the wall of the cave. Um, so that stuff is fun. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of things that, that you can do with it. Um, including, you know, just, you could create interactive, uh, you know, uh, experiences. So you can use it for seeing, for example, sharing a virtual reality experience, right? So if we're, uh, you have a person in VR, they can see three-dimensionally everywhere they are. Um, but nobody outside of that headset can see where they are. These tracked cameras can bring an audience into that VR experience. The green screen can key the person that's wearing the VR headset and knowing where the camera is in the 3D scene, we can follow them along and uh, watch and, and spectate that. So there's a few. Good, Courtney. Yeah, we used it uh, a lot on uh, Poseidon Adventure, the Wolfgang Peterson version, to do set extensions on the set. So through video assist, uh, for example, there's a live, you know, you're shooting, it's not a live show, they're shooting on film, obviously. But uh, when the camera tilts up, the whole top of the set doesn't really exist. It'll be put in in, in graphics and post-production and, and CGI. Uh, but it does give the camera operator, you know, if, if the director says, oh, I want to start on the second balcony, which will be CGI later, and come down to the foreground and end up on the two characters and on the floor in the, in the foreground, they can, uh, we would track the camera and lay in that virtual set extension so the cameraman would know where to point the camera and how to make the move and uh, where to end up in the right place. So that worked uh, pretty well, although the the amount of setup time it took in doing it in a real motion picture set uh, took up a little too much time. So they eventually axed it, but unless, except for a couple of very special shots that had to be, the timing had to be perfect. But it's, it's good for video assist in that situation where it's not used live so that they can uh, figure out, you know, where the camera's gonna pan to and what's gonna be over in the left or up above, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on YouTube, there's a, a nice little behind-the-scenes look at how the BBC used virtual production for their Olympic broadcast. So I think if you search BBC Olympics virtual studio or something like that, you can see some things. And, and they did a lot of that. Now, they were on a green screen set as well uh, instead of a physical set. But the same tool that allows us to track the camera if it pans away from the green screen and, and have Unreal generate a garbage mat and, and do that virtual extension, you can do that with a physical set as well. And you'll see a lot of uh, eSports productions will do that and they'll design their set so that there may be some kind of vertical beam that's physical. And that's essentially the seam between the physical set and the virtual set that might be above it. And so the camera can pan away and look into a virtual space. And the other, the opposite is also possible. So we could take a locked off camera of um, a camera on a tripod, not moving, have the talent in front of that camera standing uh, in standing in one place talking. And that can be composited into the virtual set. And then you could do big camera moves with the virtual camera in the Unreal Engine space where the ending position of that move is really where the physical camera is. But as long as you pull backward, you're not 
you're not losing resolution, right? As long as the, essentially it's imagine the camera that's filming the talent as being a projector. It's projecting that talent into the set. And as long as you're uh, making that talent smaller and smaller in the field of view, in the virtual camera, you're not losing any resolution. Um, and as the other trick to it is you really want to keep that um, moving virtual camera relatively in front of like, you know, left to right, maybe no more than 10 degrees offset from the position that the physical camera's in so that you don't start to get the cardboard cutout look if you go around too far to the side. So, um, so those are uh, other little creative ways of using this. Next question. Mark Giuliani from Washington, D.C. wants to know, can an Unreal Engine model feed multiple cameras simultaneously, or do you need a separate computer running Unreal Engine for each camera? So depending on how critical and expensive and live your uh, event is, you always want redundancies in lots of things, right? So um, something like, if, I forget the number. Does anyone remember uh, the Fox Sports, how many Unreal Engines they're running? Is it like two dozen or something? 12? So it's one dozen. So for an NFL broadcast at Fox Sports, they're using at least a dozen Unreal Engine boxes. Um, and probably half of those are backup. Uh, but yeah, with a DeckLink Duo, or um, I think we just got a DeckLink 8K that actually has eight HD outputs, inputs. So Unreal Engine can address each of those individually. And as long as your graphics card can keep up with generating the video for all of those outputs, a single Unreal Engine can generate you know as many SDI outputs as you can fit SDI cards in your um, in your computer. And again, there are um, Blackmagic DeckLink Duo that has four input outputs. And uh, I forget, it's the 8K the Pro maybe that has the eight. I think it's um, the quad. The quad. Uh, the quad. Eight. Yeah. yeah, something like that. I mean, I have one. It's in a box over there. Yeah, it's just yeah, exactly. not, it's not, it's not within reach. Sorry, I failed. Yeah. I failed my office hours test. <laughs> no, it's um, all good. Yeah. But, and and yeah. I mean, I would tend to always have a, a, a computer for every one of them, mostly so that you can, um, put as much detail as you want and as much into every one of those. What happens is as you start to, we've done ones where we've had four outputs from the same computer, but you start having to make, to keep your frame rate going and everything else. Now uh, you, you had to start, we had to start making choices and that, that was kind of a hard thing. Next question. Next one in from Steve Martin in Orlando, Florida. Any suggestions for Genlock setup with Blackmagic Ursa broadcast cameras with ATEM? What are you using? Uh, I mean, you can, I mean, you can just use the, there's a, a Genlock generator from Blackmagic. It's one of their micro converters. Uh, that's, that's a possibility. Um, I'm using, um, I think I'm trying to remember the, it's called an UltraSync One, and I forget the company that makes it, but it's a little wireless. Uh, unit, which, you know, I think, uh, us OGs that have been written like wireless, you can't gen lock wireless. Apparently you can gen lock wireless these days. Uh, they're a couple hundred dollars each and they can also, um, wirelessly transmit, uh, time code as well. And so we've, we've used those as well. Um, and we have like our main clock is an ambient, uh, slate that, that can generate time code. And then, um, we'll, we'll probably, we generally use one of the, I think it's Atomos is the uh, company that makes these UltraSync ones. I, I could be wrong on that. Um, but you use one of these as a master. And the nice thing about it being wireless is 
um, you can just mount it to the camera and it's just one less cable that you need to run to your camera stations. Um, but again, it, very inexpensive. There's a Genlock uh, generator from Blackmagic that's like just one of their microconverters and it's got like, I don't know, more than half a dozen outputs on it. And so that can go into your ref inputs for your Hyperdex and for your uh, constellations, your ATEMs and uh, your cameras. The one thing just to know is that the ATEM mini line does not genlock. So there's no genlock input for the ATEM minis. So you'll need either the studio or constellation models to, to use genlock. Next question. Actually, I have a question. Um, I know you have the big investment of green screen behind you. What's your preferred green screen paint? Um, I'm going to defer to Alex on that one. Uh, whatever Alex says, that's that's what the best. We one use is. we use digital. Uh, we use composite components. Digital green is is the paint that we use, and um, yeah, that's that's all we use. Roscoe is no longer the preferred choice. It's, it's got too much blue in it. Um, so it's it's it, uh, the Roscoe is a little bit darker and a little bit bluer than the than the um, than the, the, the digital green. Uh, it's a different of opinion, but I can I've used both a lot, and I would I strongly prefer the digital green. Uh, Annie, question. if you can, oh. okay, go ahead. I was just going to note one thing is that the reason I defer to Alex on that is our, our green screen paint pretty much came from Sherman Williams. And um, we just took a piece of that green gam floor to the store and said, match this the best they could. <laughs> and so, because we couldn't change the color of the, the vinyl that we were putting down. Uh, right. So we tried to have the paint match that as close as possible. And it works. You know, we, we also were using uh, Kino's. Uh, four foot Kino uh, lights and they all have green bulbs in them. So really the green screen is only getting yeah, green light. It could be gray um, and it would be green. Yeah, once now. you start doing green on green, you you can you can get away with a lot more. Um, next question. Lenny Nelson, San Antonio, Texas. Have you ever used a video wall as the virtual set so you don't have to key the talent? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if we can go back to the super source and Laura, can you use the joystick to move your camera three to show our video wall? So over here, that's perfect. Thank you. So um, this gray wall that you see here is our video wall. So it's 12 feet wide and 10 feet high. And um, this is actually a retired US Army rear projection uh, rules of engagement training simulator. And uh, back about 20 years ago, they donated the college because it wasn't of use to them anymore. Um, they had other ways of practicing and, and um, or maybe they just didn't need practice. They had, they just did practical. Uh, but uh, we use a pair for this. Uh, we use a uh, pair of laser projectors. Each laser projector is 5,000 lumens. And we use a software called Scalable Display Desktop that basically pixel for pixel lines them up using, we use a camera. And so then they perfectly overlap. And at, with that setup, we can actually get white spots on the screen that are brighter than our LED studio lights. So we actually have to kind of tone down the brightness of the Unreal Engine scenes. And so this is set up to be gen locked uh, from, from our Unreal Engine scene. And then, yeah, the tracked camera faces the talent. The talent is on camera. We're lighting them practically. And then the uh, uh, video goes onto that screen. And we get all the parallax of all the movement because it's all live updating. So it's not like South by South or, you know. Yeah, and we've we've used LED walls as well. Thanks. The big thing you get into is is um, uh, if you use an LED wall as opposed to projection, you get a lot of brightness um, that's that's available there. But you, Marais and a lot of other compression artifacts become more challenging. Uh, a lot of times, we're trying to get 
under 1.2 mil. Um, you can't curve that. So the ones you see behind the scenes of Mandalorian and so on and so forth, I think the point is the ones curve. <laughs> so uh, it's too t- too tight. So you have to be careful of Murray. And if you actually look at some of the behind the scenes in Mandalorian, you'll see the Murray. <laughs> like it was, you know, they had to, it, it does it does limit what they can shoot at times. Nick, thank you so much. Thanks to the entire class uh, there and, yeah, and the studio and cameras, Drexel. And, uh, four. Switch to camera four so we can see the whole room. Come out, Captain Chelsea. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hey, thank, thanks, everybody. Here we are. Such a great experience. Uh, you know, this is the dream is there to be go. able to jump and into a studio and, and talk about something in detail when you're, you're coming in from there. And so... So it's really, really great to have. Uh, th- I just want to thank Nick and, and all the students in Drexel University uh, for, for making this available. Really, really great second hour. So thanks, Nick. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thanks, everybody there. And uh, we uh, thanks to the, um, of course, thanks to the, the panelists. Can't do this without you. Uh, thank you. know, just a, you know, a great first hour. And then we jumped into the second hour. Great conversation here. Uh, thanks to the uh, to the producers who are, of course, asking all the questions and keeping our show going. And thanks to the incredible back end team who has to figure out how to make all this stuff work <laughs> as, as we start. And we're going to bring a studio in. Uh, so thanks to the to the incredible back end st- uh, team that's putting all this stuff together. Um, we traveled 50,000 miles, um, 81,000 kilometers, 403 million bananas for scale uh, today. So, um, so it's good. It good That's good a lot of, of bananas. A lot of bananas. So much potassium. All right, everybody, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. I'm going to jump into after hours too. I'm oh, still on. I got to go get a coffee now. I liked it. We that may be cool. working from the. May be working from some of those students someday. Leave the, you can leave the zone.